Today we're going to look at the, excuse me, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's found in Matthew chapter 20. If you have your Bibles there, you can turn to Matthew 20. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Starts in, the story starts in verse 1. We're going to look at the context actually a little bit later of, of what's all happens here right in a row. But it's, we're going to jump into the parable first, then we'll kind of go back and backtrack a little bit and, and realize what's, what's happening in this parable and who Jesus' audience is. So we're going to tell, uh, tell us a parable about some workers during harvest time. Now, we should be able to appreciate that because that's what's happening right now. If you live in a place where there's lots of agriculture like we do here in Weezer, like we did when Stacey and I lived in Northern California, uh, if there's a time of the year that, where there should be an unemployment rate of zero, it's harvest time, right? If you want a job, you want to drive truck for 14 hours a day, right now, they'll hire you, right? And it's the same was true in Jesus' time. And it's, it's an agricultural-based society, so during harvest time, everybody can have it. If you want a job, there's plenty of work to, have, to be had, right? And that's what the setting of the story is. It's, it's harvest time for the vineyard. It's time to pick grapes. And so the, the owner of this vineyard is going to go out and hire some people to do that. The lesson, of course, is going to be much deeper and greater than simply just hiring people for harvest time. As we're going to see here, as Jesus tells us this parable in Matthew chapter 20. Verse 1 starts like this. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now we're not given the exact time. Uh, Most of the time during harvest, as soon as the sun came up, remember this is before the advent of electricity, so there's no way to really work at nighttime. So as soon as the sun comes up, probably somewhere around 6 a.m., the people who are, are day laborers, who that's what they do, they're, they're ready to work for the day, they'll go to the marketplace, people who are ready to hire them will, will go. If you've ever been, uh, this happens to this day outside of Home Depot, right? If you want to go hire somebody for the day, sometimes those people just hang out outside of Home Depot, you can go hire them for the day to do whatever work you need to be done and pay them and you're done. That's the setting we have here. So the landowner needs the grapes to be picked, needs it to be picked in a timely manner, so he goes to the marketplace to find people. There are people waiting for a job. He gives them a job. They agree on a denarius, which is the, the going rate for an, a day's worth of, of work, and they're off to the vineyard to pick. Really, it's not that exciting of a story until we get on here a little further. The story continues in verse 3. It says, About nine in the morning, probably roughly about three hours later, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Those of us who are night people, like myself, this would be us, right? We weren't there at 6 in the morning. We're just not, I can't do it. I, I mean, I did for a while, but it's not, it's not fun. For all of you who get up early to go to work, God bless you. I'm not doing it. I did it. I'm not doing it anymore. I, I'd much rather stay up late at night than get up early in the morning. So that, that crew is here. This is us. The, the, these are the early birds among us, right? Us night people. 9 o'clock, we're there ready for work. Had your coffee, your breakfast, you woke up. You're not quite as grumpy as you were at 8 o'clock and you're ready to go to work. And so at 9 o'clock, he goes and sees these people and says, hey, you want to work? I've got work for you. They don't negotiate on a price, if you notice here. What's he say in verse 4? Go out and you work all day and I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's fair. I'll pay you what's just, right? So they take him at his word and they go. The story continues and second half of, of, chapter, of excuse me, of verse 5. So the, the landowner goes out again to the marketplace, this time about noon, for those of you who really can't get out of bed, right? For our teenagers who are up all night playing video games, they're ready now, finally, at noon. 
Huh, Johnny? Levi. Absolutely. About noon, goes. About three, comes back again. If it's three o'clock, you've got a problem. You need to go to the doctor, right? If you're not up before three, that's, it's a little late at that point. He goes out again at five, verse six. Every time he goes out, there's more people who've gone to the marketplace to come and work. Now, some of them are likely people who have their own little small farms, who've had to do work at their own house and then come out trying to make a little extra money, right? Five in the afternoon, in verse six, we read, he went out and found still others standing there. So he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. He said, I got to get these grapes... Grapes have to be harvested, they have to be done. I don't care what time of the day you came, get out there and get to picking, right? This is how the story continues in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going on to the first. So it's time to settle, settle up. We're reading, actually in the book of Deuteronomy, of where this standard has been set. So in the Old Testament, it actually was commanded that you do exactly what this man is doing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says this in verse 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord, against you, and you will be guilty of sin. So Israelite people, when you worked a day, you got paid for that day's worth of work because God had instituted that way, way back in the Old Testament. It makes sense, right? If you're a day laborer, that day's wages is how you're going to survive. It's how you feed your family. It's how you put a roof over your head. For most of us, probably even to this day, especially all of us when we're younger, right? You live paycheck to paycheck. If you're expecting a paycheck every two weeks and your boss came into you and said, well, we're not going to give it to you this time, but we'll just give it to you in two more weeks, you'd say, uh, that's not going to work. I've got bills to be paid. It's true about day laborers. Every day they got paid for their labor because you're never sure if they were going to come back the next day. They could get sick. Something could happen. They need that money right then and right now. And so the, what we're seeing from the landowner is the landowner is a just person. He's doing what he's supposed to do. This is what you did is you paid those people for their day's work as soon as they were done working so the evening has come. They're all done working. He says, I want you to pay the ones who were hired last first, and then you pay the ones who, were, who worked the longest, you're going to pay them last. Now, if you've been out in the vineyard and you were there since 6 in the morning, and you were there all day long through the heat of the day, and the guy that came at 5, he's going to get paid too. What are you expecting? Most of us get paid an hourly wage, right? Unless you're a salaried employee. You're probably expecting to make a little more money than he did. But remember, the only people who negotiated a price, if you remember the story, was who? The very earliest people, right? The people who came about six in the morning, they, five, six in the morning, whenever sunset, or excuse me, when the sun came up, when the sun rose, they're the only ones who negotiated a price. And that price was one denarius for a day's work, which is the going rate for that day. They're the only ones who, everybody else trusted the landowner that he would do what's right and what's just. So what we're going to see happen is we're going to have a little conflict here because the landowner doesn't do what the people, the workers, expected. So the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Now that's what the guys who came at early in the morning at six o'clock had, had negotiated for, right? 
And so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. What's their grumble? If you have kids, you've heard this about 4,000 times, probably eight times before you got to church today. It's not fair, right? That's not fair. And as a parent, you get to say to them, well, life's not fair, right? And that's, it's a great, that's, I do it with a smile on my face because it's just like, oh, here's a life lesson for you, right? It's not fair. This Yahoo showed up at 5 o'clock. He's worked for four hours, three hours. And he gets paid the same as I've been here for 14. That's not fair. That's what they're saying. That's what they're grumbling, right? That's not fair. What's the landowner say in verse 12? These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So they showed up for one hour. They worked. You paid them the same. You're going to pay them the same as you paid us? And his response in verse 13 is this. But he answered one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? See, we shout and scream, that's not fair. But what isn't fair about it? Now, when we normally shout and scream about something not being fair, it's because we believe we're getting the short end of the stick, right? The thing is, the landowner hasn't cheated anyone. As a matter of fact, he's gone the opposite direction. Not only has he not cheated anybody, not only is he not being stingy, what is he doing? He's actually being generous. He's going the opposite direction. Instead of paying them just a little bit, which he absolutely could, nobody would argue, right, if he paid them less than denarius, the people who showed up later in the day. Instead of paying them less, he's giving everybody the same amount of money. He's being generous. He's giving them more than they actually deserve. So those who worked the whole day are thinking to themselves, well, that's not fair. And the landowner says, well, what's not fair? You negotiated a price. We agreed on the price. You worked, and I'm paying you the price. If they wouldn't have been there, if they wouldn't have saw it, they would have never known, right, that he paid them more than they were getting paid. And the story ends in verse 16 with Jesus saying this. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You've heard that before. People who've never even read the Bible have heard that before, right? The last will be first, and the first will be last. It's actually the second time in a very short time period that Jesus utters those words in the book of Matthew. So what I want to do is I want to look back at some of the context of what's happening in the book of Matthew. If you go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, kind of the very beginning of this whole section, we learn who's in the audience. Who's listening to Jesus tell this, this parable? He had been questioned about divorce. He had had the little children come to him. We've all heard that passage before. He has a rich young man come to him and ask him a question about how he attains eternal life. He tells him he has to sell his stuff. He's really bummed about it and goes home. He tells and then he tells this parable. It's all kind of right in a row. What we read in, in Matthew 19 is this, the beginning of it. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. 
Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked him a question about divorce. He answers the question. He talks about the little children come to him. He blesses and accepts them. He talks to a rich young man, and then he tells us this parable. So we see that there's a large crowd gathered to hear Jesus speak, and in that crowd are some Pharisees. Now, if there's any people we love to pick on, it's the Pharisees, right? They're supposed to be the religious elite, those who have studied hard and are diligent in following the law. The Pharisees had built a law around a fence around the law because they didn't want to break the, the Old Testament law, the 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament. So they had added more to it. And they're diligent and they're religious and they show up all the time. And they always bring something to potluck, right? And Jesus tells this parable. I have to believe that some of this parable is directed at them. He says, guys, it doesn't matter when you come. The importance is that you come. Remember, he began this parable by telling us this is a parable about the kingdom. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for your entire life or two days. The promise is the same for us all. See, the problem that the workers have with the landowner is that he's too gracious. He's too giving. He's too compassionate. He's too loving. What we see in the Gospels is we have a group of people known as the Pharisees who have a problem with Jesus. And what's their problem with Jesus? They come out right and say it in the Gospels eventually. That dude hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He talks to people who we shouldn't be talking to. You might say that their accusation against Jesus is that he's too gracious. He's too loving. He's too merciful. He's too compassionate. And Jesus tells this parable to try to get them to understand that if you want to be close to God, you have to understand that God is way too gracious. And he's way too loving. And he's way too compassionate. And he's way too forgiving. And he's way too merciful. And if you want to be like him, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you have to be like him. You have to be way too loving and way too gracious way too merciful. Have way too much compassion and care way too much about people. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, is like a landowner who's way, way too gracious. To the people who don't deserve it, he gives them a denarius even though they haven't earned it. And the gospel says that you and I are dead in our transgressions and our sins. We are in trouble. But our God is just so gracious. He's just so loving. He's just so compassionate that He can't stand to watch us die like that. And so He sends His Son, His only Son, to take on flesh and blood and to live and to die for us. Because our God is way too gracious. He's way too loving. Because grace isn't fair. It never has been, and it never will be. So when your kid says, hey, 
that's not fair. You say, absolutely right, it's not. It's not fair that Jesus paid for my sins. Your sins. They're my sins. They're not his. Yet in his infinite graciousness and lovingness, he paid for them all. Isn't that the point of this parable? That if we're going to err on the side, let's make sure we err on the side of grace. Because our God, who is both gracious and just, he errs on the side of grace. And when the scales are tipped, they're tipped toward grace. Remember, another part we learned from this passage is that the faithful aren't always rewarded now for their diligence. Everybody received the same wage, even those who showed up at 6 in the morning. Time is coming when that diligence will be paid off and be rewarded. We have to make sure that in our dealings with people, including those of us here in this room, that when we deal with each other, we deal with each other in a gracious manner. That we're forgiving. Because if we can't forgive each other, how in the world are people who don't yet know Jesus going to forgive them and each other? We're example, we're a shining light of what it means to follow after this Jesus. What I think is, is interesting is in verse 5, actually it's in verse 6. Go back for a minute. Remember, this parable is a parable about the kingdom. As I was reading it again this morning, something struck me. In verse 6, Jesus goes out again, or the landowner does, excuse me, who's representing God. And five in the afternoon, he's out there and he's looking for people and there's still people standing there and he asks them something. Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Now in this parable, it's talking about actual physical labor, right, work. But I want you to think about the, what the parable is about. The parable is about the kingdom. And what does Jesus seem to believe about people who are unwilling to be a part of the kingdom. That until we meet this Jesus, until we enter into a relationship with him, we have no purpose. I don't know if I've said it to you guys before. I, I, I have said it to, I think, the youth kids before. When, before we meet this Jesus, we're essentially zombies. Zombies are really popular in popular culture. If you're not up with that, it's okay. But a zombie is something who's dead that comes back to life but really doesn't have the intellect to, to know what's going on, right? And that's what we are until we meet this Jesus. We are doing nothing. All we're living for is ourselves. All we're trying to do is is find pleasure for ourselves. And what struck me is I think that there's more meaning to that than just the people out there who haven't worked is that until you've met this Jesus, nothing good is going to come from your life. You might have little things here and there, but until you take this faith serious, until you make Jesus a part of your everyday life, 
Your life is going to be spent doing whatever you want to do. Which you know what that ends up in the, in the long run being? Nothing. You want to know why? Because it all ends one day. But kingdom work, it lasts forever. It's eternal. Because when we invest in other people, people are the only thing that really lasts. Your car, your house, your stuff, it's all going to get old someday and you're going to have to throw it away, take it to the dump. It's going to be a sad day, right? Trust me, I drive a 2002 Ford Ranger. The day's coming where it's not just going to go anymore and it's going to make me real sad because I've had that thing since high school. And we're emotionally attached to each other now, right? I know it's just a vehicle. I get it. It's not the prettiest vehicle. I understand. But it's mine. But the thing is, it's just an object. And it isn't going to last. The only thing that lasts in this world is the people around you. They're the only thing that takes on forever. And so until we invest in them, we are wasting our time. That's why parenting is so important for everyone here today who has kids. You are making disciples every day at home. And often parents get really sad because they're so busy with kids they feel like they can't pour their lives into somebody else's. And my thought to you is, what are you talking about? Every day you're pouring yourself into those little people's lives. Every day you're investing in them. And as my wife always says, discipline is discipleship. As we teach them right and wrong, we're discipling them, we're teaching them, we're helping them to learn. And we're pouring our hearts and our souls into them every day. You have the most important job in the world. And then when those kids are gone someday, then you can go invest in somebody else and pour pour into them. But if we're not investing in people, then Jesus seems to believe that we are accomplishing nothing with our lives. That nothing good's going to come from it. Because you can rise to the top of whatever the career you're in, and you can climb that ladder until you've kicked everybody else off of it. Someday you'll retire, and they'll give you a cake. And then what? You'll spend... Then what, John? And then you wake up the next day and somebody else is taking your job. And they might even do it better than you did. But when we're investing in people, like Jesus did, if you think about Jesus throughout the Gospels, what do we see him doing? Day after day after day. He's pouring his life into other people. I've given him everything he has. And we have been called to do the same exact thing. I don't want to get to the end of my days and I've accomplished nothing. So we better be pouring our hearts and our souls into the lives and hearts and souls of other people. Telling them about this Jesus. So that they're not, at the end of the day, doing nothing. It's the last thing we want. Jesus ended this parable with a reminder to us, went too far, that the Last will be first, and the first will be last. And there's lots of ways of interpreting that. There's lots of ways of meaning it. But what is he saying? If you go back to the book of Matthew, just the chapter before, in in verse 19, excuse excuse me if I could speak, in chapter 19, a rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him what he has to do to inherit eternal life. 
Jesus says, have you followed these commands? He says, I've, I followed those, yes. He says, well, then you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young man, what the Bible tells us, goes away discouraged. Why? Because his identity has been wrapped up in his stuff, in his wealth. But what happens next is interesting. The disciples who are there with Jesus also get a little discouraged. They say something to Jesus that's really, really interesting. Verse 25 of Matthew 19, it says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. He says that in the context of this rich young man who has everything. And people looked at this man's life and thought, he's got it all. Everything he has, I want. And Jesus warns his disciples saying, be careful what you wish for. Because if you think that wealth, that stuff, is going to fix it, is going to fill the hole in your life, it never will. Jesus says, remember that the first will be last, and the last will be first. He says, you might appear crazy to everybody else around you by giving up all kinds of things for this Jesus. And the disciples had given, given up a, their careers. They're traveling with Jesus. They're not with their family. Some of them have kids. Right? They've, they've sacrificed so much to be with him for those three years. And Jesus says, don't worry. You'll be repaid, not in full, but of the hundred times more than you could have ever dreamed of. That when we put the kingdom first, God will see us through. When we look out for our own wants, our own desires, our own pleasures, we accomplish nothing. But when the kingdom is first, Jesus says, you might not get repaid now. You might appear as though you're last, but a day is coming when you'll be put first. A kingdom work always reaps rewards. Might not be now, but those rewards are coming. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this parable of the workers in the vineyard. We learn so much from it. God, one thing is for us to be gracious towards other people. No matter how long we've been Christians, when someone decides to make that decision, God, we know you rejoice in heaven. Whether it's on their deathbed, or whether it's weeks or months or years before, God, you celebrate when people decide to humble themselves and enter into a relationship with you. And God, would you help us, those of us who, most of us have probably been Christians for, for quite a while, to make sure we're gracious towards the people around us and we're gracious towards those who are young in you. Help us to pour our lives into the lives of other people, knowing that other people are the only thing that's going to last. That we spend an awful lot of time and energy and our resources on stuff that will never make it past this life. Help us to put first things first. God, we thank you for this Jesus who sacrificed everything for us. Gave his life as a ransom for our sins. 
God, we're also grateful that the, the grave couldn't hold him. And he burst back to life three days later, giving each and every one of us the hope of life everlasting with you. God, we will never be able to repay you for all that you've done for us. We, we certainly could never earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And so today and every day, we just sit and bask in the glory of your grace. And there's nothing we can do to deserve it, nothing we can do to earn it, but that you give it to us every day anyways. And we are so, so grateful that you are a God of grace. God, we thank you and we love you for all that you do for us. And we pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus. Amen.